You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. Well, again, welcome back. Glad y'all are back. I've missed you guys. So I had, uh, I had three guys that I lived with in college for three years. Uh, I, I know I've talked about them before. Um, let's see. You got Brian, Ross, Chad. Uh, Brian, he is now a, a head basketball coach at a high school in Arkansas. Probably going to win the state championship. He's got two seven-foot guys on his high school team. One of them's a freshman. He's seven-foot-two. Still growing. Shoots like Dirk. Uh, so they're unstoppable. Um, and then uh, Chad, or Ross, he's a, uh, he's a pastor in Little Rock, Arkansas. And, uh, and Chad, I, I don't even know really what he does, something boring. Um, but those three guys, man, they mean the world to me, best buds. We still spend a lot of time together, got to see them over the break. Um, but I was also involved in a fraternity in college, which I know I've shared about this before. Um, and so through that fraternity, I got to know a bunch of other guys. Um, my, my big brother in my fraternity, if you don't know fraternity sorority stuff, you know, just go with it. My big brother in my fraternity was a guy named Heath Sutton. Uh, everybody called him Sutton. He's your typical East Texas guy. Uh, thick accent, uh, UT fan, always wears camo, uh, tries to act tough, usually has a dip in his mouth, uh, not the greatest judgment. Uh, what else here? Anyways, that's Sutton. And um, you, know, you always hear about certain events like bringing people together, like you share an experience, and through that experience, like it draws you together. Like a great example of this is, is our spring break mission trips that we go on. You know, we're going to Beach Reach this year, Panama City Beach, Florida. Um, that's an experience that I, I still remember my very first mission trip ever, which was in college, and I still remember those people, sometimes communicate still with those people, and uh, once you share this experience, it's like you're bonded together for life. And and for me and Ross and Chad and Brian and Sutton, it really wasn't so much an event that bonded us together, but a video game. Uh, we had this Nintendo 64, which uh, is the best game system ever. Um, and we had this game called New World Tetris. Now, I have to clarify here. This is not Tetris, okay? This is New World Tetris. It's basically Tetris on crack. Uh, and it's very addicting, I would assume, like crack supposedly is. Uh, anybody here ever heard of New World Tetris? Anybody? Okay, so y'all, I guess maybe y'all have played it. You played it. It's amazing. It's, it's really the greatest game ever. Tetris itself is, eh, New World Tetris is the best. I mean, it's, it's so addicting, and it's been such a bonding experience for us that now anytime I go to see them, uh, somebody finds a Nintendo 64. We still have the New World Tetris game, which is hard to find now on Amazon, and we play it. Uh, all the time. I'm going to be preaching up in Arkansas in a, in a few weeks, and they've already planned to drive down from northwest Arkansas and Little Rock, stay in my hotel, hotel room with me, bring the Nintendo 64, play Tetris. We played this thing all the time. We got addicted to it. I mean, to the point to where you're trying to go to bed at night, you close your eyes, and all you see is Tetris pieces falling down, and you're piecing them in. You have dreams about Tetris. You start to pray, and you end up talking about Tetris with God. Uh, but junior year rolls around. And Sutton, he was older than us. He is older than us. And he was graduating at Christmas. So Christmas of junior year rolls around. He was graduating. And he, the problem is he owned the New World Tetris game. And so um, fall semester, we started playing this game just like a ton because we knew he was going to be leaving at Christmas. So like the last few weeks of the semester, we're just playing it nonstop. 
getting way too good at this game and way too addicted at this game. And so the last day of the semester rolls around, and, and Sutton is moving out, like, for good. He's graduating, leaving, going somewhere else, back to East Texas or wherever. And, uh, and so we're thinking, man, this is our last moments with this game. Ross, pastor guy, which you need to know something about Ross. Ross is like the most innocent human being on planet Earth. Uh, he's really scrawny. Uh, he's actually pretty athletic, but super scrawny. Uh, wouldn't hurt a fly. Couldn't hurt a fly. Uh, and so Ross was about to leave and go back to Little Rock. Now, me and Chad, we were sticking around for a while because we're procrastinators, didn't really want to go home yet. So we're going to stay for another day. And so Ross is packing up his car. He's almost done packing his car. He's got one duffel bag left in the room sitting on the floor. Uh, Sutton is packing up his car for the last time from college. We asked him, hey, let us hang with the game for a little bit while you pack up, and then we'll give it to you. And, uh, and then I'm in there playing New World Tetris. Chad is in the shower. And, uh, and so while they're down at their cars packing, Chad and I start talking while he's showering. I'm playing the game. Um, and he's like, you know, we're just talking about how we're going to miss the game. And all of a sudden, I hear the shower water turn off. And Chad goes, Austin, I just came up with the most brilliant idea ever. And I was like, okay, what is it? And he goes, dude, you should take the New World Tetris game, and you should stick it in the bottom of Ross's duffel bag. And then when Ross comes up in a minute, he's about to leave for Little Rock. He'll have the game. Sutton's going to come ask for the game from us. We'll act like we thought we, he had already taken it, not know what happened to the game. And, uh, and it'll be perfect because then Ross is going to come back with the game, not even knowing he stole the game, and we'll have the game for the rest of college. And I'm thinking, <laughs> that is a brilliant idea. Uh, and so Chad goes, but you better hurry because Ross had just gone down to his car, you know, like five minutes ago. Surely he's going to be back up any minute. And Ross would not be down with this plan. He's super innocent. He would have, in fact, probably told on us to Sutton. He's one of those kind of guys. So I freak out. I don't just grab the game. I rip the entire Nintendo 64 out of the wall. And I shove it in the bottom of Ross's bag, cover it up with clothes, zip it up, and I sit back down and get a book, cross my legs. I'm reading like, you know, nothing's happening. Chad goes back to, goes back to showering. And uh, somehow the controls didn't make it, so the controls are sprawled out along the floor. Ross comes in, doesn't notice what ha- what's happened, grabs his bag, says, I'll see you after the new year, and he leaves. So the plan was Sutton's going to come in here in a little bit. Chad and I are just going to play it cool. Be like, I thought you already took the game. That's why the game was gone. Um, problem is, I kind of screwed things up with throwing the whole console in the bag. So, so Chad gets out of the shower. And when Chad gets out of the shower, he looks. He sees the controls on the floor. No console. No game. And he's like, dude, what did you do with the Nintendo 64? And I was like, I freaked out. I, that's what I did. I freaked out. And I just grabbed the whole thing and threw it in the bag. And he's like, oh, my gosh. So we're rolling on the floor laughing right when Sutton comes in. And so... He's like, hey, so I'm here to get my game. And uh, again, our plan was to be like, oh, you know, I thought you already took it. But we're rolling on the floor laughing, like almost tears in our eyes. And, uh, and, and so we're like, dude, we don't know what happened to your game. Of course, we're laughing. And he's like, what'd you do with my game? And he was not like, we were thinking he would be cool, you know, about it and play it cool and everything. But he was like, not cool about it at all. In fact, we're laughing. And he goes, dude, I'm going to kill you if you don't get my game. He's being said dead serious. We're still having uncontrollable laughter issues over here. And he's like, I'm not kidding. I'm going to murder somebody. Get me my game. So he starts taking stuff out of our room. He grabs our TV, rips it out of the wall. He takes it down, down the hallway to his room, comes back. He starts grabbing other stuff. He grabs Chad's computer, takes it out, takes it down to his room. Then he just starts grabbing stuff and throwing it in the hallway. He comes in. We had those open closets. And he just goes like this with all of Chad's hanging clothes, takes them out in the hallway and throws them out there, comes in and gets mine. And we're thinking, oh, man, this is not, this is not good. Um, and so we're sitting there just letting him chill out because he is kind of crazy, East Texas guy. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and so finally, there's not really anything else for him to throw out of the room. So he leaves, and it's like quiet for a little bit. And so Chad and I are sitting there still kind of giggling, you know. 
We don't giggle. We were laughing. Uh, <laughs> and it was quiet for a while, so I was like, hey, maybe he's done. Maybe we can go down there and get our stuff back. And so I kind of opened the door really quietly. We, we, we lived in the freshman dorms all four years of college because uh, it was awesome. And, and so he lived down the hallway. And so I kind of, you know, slowly opened the door to see if there was any activity going on down his end of the hallway. As I do that, I see him shutting his door, locking his door, and holding a baseball bat in his hand. And so I turn to Chad, and I'm like, uh, he's got a bat. we got to do something. And so we didn't have time to lock our doors. Now, I'll give you a little picture of our dorm room. We lived in a suite, and so there's, uh, which sounds fancy, it's not, uh, two dorm rooms with a tiny little bathroom in the middle. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, so we didn't have time to lock the two doors, so we just ran to that tiny little bathroom, like three-foot-by-four-foot bathroom. It's one of those bathrooms where there's just enough room for a commode and then, like, a stand-up shower, and in order to sit on the commode, you have to open the door to the shower so your knees have somewhere to go. And so uh, we run into the bathroom, we lock the doors, Chad gets into the stand-up shower like this, and I'm standing up on the commode like this, because I didn't want him to see my feet. And so we're just like dead silent, and all of a sudden, you know, 30 seconds later, we hear the door to the room we were just in kind of slowly, you know, creep open. I mean, literally, like real-life horror film... And, and so I'm, I'm looking at Chad, he's got the door closed and it's one of those frosted doors. So I can't really see what he's doing, but he's like making, you know, jet anyways. So I'm like, just, and so we're dead quiet. And, and then you hear the door shut. And so we weren't sure what happened here. You know, we thought maybe he saw that the room was empty. So we left, but we weren't sure. So we were still quiet thinking, okay, maybe he's in there just kind of looking around for stuff or whatever. And so we're just really quiet. And all of a sudden you see this shadow come up to the door. You know, you got the little space under the door, see his feet come up in the shadow and we're just like, oh, my gosh, Lord, please. <laughs> and, uh, and then all of a sudden you hear this really light, you know, tap on the door. And I'm like, I don't see anything. And so we're, we're totally quiet. And, uh, and, and the shadow after about, I don't know, 45 seconds just kind of walks away. And you hear the door open, shut. And so I'm still standing up there on the commode. And Chad's still in the shower. And I'm like, Chad, do you have your cell phone? And... Uh, He's like, yeah. And I was like, dude, call Ross. Tell him to get back here with the, with the Tetris game and the Nintendo 64 while he's at it. Uh, and he's like, dude, Ross is going to be, he's going to freak out when he realizes he stole Sutton's video game. And uh, so he calls Chad. He's on the phone with Chad. And uh, he's, like, he's like, dude, you got to get back here. Ross is like, I'm already halfway to Little Rock, which is an hour away. So I'm already halfway to Little Rock. Why? And he goes, dude, you stole Sutton's game. He's like, I've stole what? And he's freaking out. So he turns around. He heads back to Arkadelphia, Arkansas. And, uh, and so Chad gets off the phone. And I'm still on the toilet, and he's still in the shower, and we're thinking, okay, I think the coast is clear. And right when we think that, we hear this throat clear from behind the other door of the bathroom. We look down, and we see Sutton's feet, and we're, like, busted out of that bathroom, <laughs> ran for our lives. Now, long story short, uh, Ross brings the game back. We survived, clearly. Now, why do I share this story? I promise I have a purpose. <laughs> I share this story because Sutton went crazy trying to get back what had been taken away from him. He was willing to go to way too extreme of lengths to get this Tetris game that we had taken from him. In fact, once we gave it back to him, he took it down to his room and he stuck it in the Nintendo 64 player that he had, started playing it. We went down there to apologize. I'm not even kidding. He's sitting in his beanbag chair with tears in his eyes playing New World Tetris. But I share this because in the same way that Sutton was willing to go to extreme lengths to get back something that was taken from him, we are studying this semester the book of Exodus. And what Exodus shows us, it reveals to us a God who is so passionate about his people and about his glory 
that he went to extreme lengths to get back what had been taken away from him. And so we're picking up tonight, actually in Exodus 2, but I want to I build the context to that point. So if you were to actually go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, in Genesis 12, you see God call out this dude named Abram. Eventually his name's going to be changed to what? Abraham. And, and, and what you see, Genesis 12, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, and this is really key, verse 4 says, so Abram went. So what you see is God says, hey Abram, I want you to drop everything. Leave your family, leave your friends, leave the comfort of your home and the area that you know, and I want you to go where I'm telling you to go. He doesn't tell him where he wants him to go. He just says, I just want you to start walking. Now that alone is a sermon we could preach on trusting God. Verse four is the key moment where Abram says, all right, and he goes. Now, I'm not gonna preach that sermon. The result of him going is that was the beginning of God calling out a people to be his people. Because Abram, name changes to Abraham, and he has a son. What was the name of one of his sons? Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. And as you read further into the story, in, in, the, in the historical accounts of what happened, Jacob's name uh, ends up getting changed to what? Israel. And, and so Jacob, he ends up having uh, 12 sons. And one of Jacob's sons, or Israel's sons, uh, was a guy named Joseph. And the through various circumstances, the, the 11 other brothers of Joseph uh, ended up not liking, in fact, they hated Joseph. This all plays out, I think, around Genesis chapter 35, 36, maybe 37. And so they didn't like Joseph. So what they did is they sold him into slavery. They sold him into slavery through a bunch of series of events here. Joseph ends up in Egypt, which was a, was a powerful place at that time. He ends up in Egypt, and he ends up spending tons of time in prison. But then all this other crazy stuff happens. And, and after spending all this time in prison, he ends up being raised up to the second highest ranking position in all of Egypt, second only to the Pharaoh. So he's basically, he, he gets sold into slavery, goes to prison, spends a ton of time there, but somehow ends up basically leading, uh, I think I said Israel a second ago, I meant to say Egypt, leading Egypt. And so, uh, so after this happens, then there's this famine, uh, this, this famine that hits Egypt and the surrounding lands. And those surrounding lands included where Jacob and his other 11 sons were, Israel and his other 11 sons. And so what happens is Jacob sends these sons to Egypt to get some food to help support their family through this famine. And in the process, like they had no idea where Joseph was if he was still alive. But because Joseph was in charge, they ended up meeting with Joseph. They didn't know it was Joseph at first. And the story how it plays out is really pretty incredible. But they end up meeting Joseph, not even knowing he was alive, definitely not realizing he was basically running Egypt and then through a series of dramatic events, they, they come to realize it's Joseph. They're reunited with Joseph. And then Joseph invites Jacob and the 11 brothers and all of their family to now move to Egypt. And just like that, Israel's family, Jacob's family, moves to Egypt. And, and because of Joseph's position, they, they step into immediately being like this upper-class family of people in Egypt. And, and so all this stuff plays out, and, and that's where we essentially pick up in Exodus chapter 1. Now, Exodus chapter 1, uh, verse 5 says this. It says, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. So we're, we're going back to where Genesis ends, okay? Um, this is kind of this first paragraph of Exodus 1. 
basically takes a moment to catch us up on where we're picking up in Exodus 2. So Exodus 1 says, Jacob and all of his family was 70 people. So when, when Israel and his family moved to Egypt, we're talking about 70 people. And it says, all the sins of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Verse 6, Exodus 1 verse 6 says, Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. So that generation passes away. Verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now this goes back to Genesis 12 and the promise that God made to Abraham. If you trust me, I'll make your family great. And that's exactly what's happening. In fact, two more times in Exodus, you see it talk about the fact that their family continued and continued and continued to multiply in number. This happened to the point that when you get to Genesis or Exodus 12, in the actual moment of the exodus out of Egypt, you see that there are uh, easily over a million people that make up this Israelite family, essentially this Israelite nation now. And, and, and so in Genesis or Exodus 12, it says there's 600,000 men. That doesn't include women and children. So that's how you get that number of at least one million. So when we pick up in Exodus 1, are you still with me? Okay, when you pick up in Exodus 1, we're talking since the time of Joseph and all the brothers moving with Jacob to Egypt, we're talking 400 years has gone by. And in that 400 years, where we get now in Exodus chapter 1 and 2, a lot of stuff has happened. And one of the bigger things that has happened is the, the Pharaoh that was in charge when Joseph was second in command, he's died. And so now there's this new Pharaoh, as Exodus calls it, and this new king in charge. And this new king who'd taken over Egypt had no idea who Joseph was. And to be honest, he didn't care who Joseph was. And so the Israelites quickly went from being upper class to this, to this lower class with, not, not, with no special privileges. And then after that, they go to being seen as this threat to the nation or the kingdom or the empire of Egypt because they continue to grow and grow and grow so much. You see this in Exodus 1. The king starts freaking out because the Israelites were so huge in number that he was afraid if they got attacked by another country, the Israelites might turn on Egypt and join that other country and defeat Egypt. And so because of this, that king now makes the Israelites not just lower class, but slaves. So when we get to Exodus, Israel, 70 persons, has turned into over a million people. And this upper class family has turned into a slave family. So they are now enslaved. And, and it was a brutal slavery. Exodus 1 verse 11 says, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, uh, Python and Ramses. Uh, verse 13 and 14 says, So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. It was a brutal slavery. But here's the thing. Even in the midst of this brutal slavery, this people of Israel continued to multiply. And because they continue to multiply, the king gets even more freaked out. So now he tells the midwives, uh, people that were helping the Israelite uh, mothers deliver their babies, he tells the midwives to kill any son that is born to the Hebrews or to the Israelites. And, and the midwives, they refused to do so. They feared God, so they didn't obey the Pharaoh. So now the Pharaoh has to do something else. He makes a law, essentially, that says if you see... A, a, a son of the Hebrews, like a baby, you need to take him and you need to drown him in the Nile River. So when we pick up in Exodus, this is what's happening. These people are enslaved. These terrible things are, are happening to them. And, and so Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, that's where we're going to start tonight. 
It says, during those many days, everything I just told you about, the king of Egypt died. So now this is the king of Egypt that had put them into slavery. Now he's died. It says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Um, I've told you before, um, when I was in college, my senior year in college, I got to go to Senegal, which is in Western Africa. So I'm going to draw a map here for you. So like, here's Africa, like that. And then here's this western side of Africa. And, uh, and so you, you know how it curves around like this and then kind of comes down? So Senegal's right here, right where all the Ebola stuff is going on right now. That's where Senegal is. Um, westernmost part of Africa. And right off the coast of Senegal is an island called Gore Island. I don't know if you've heard of Gore Island. It's, a, it's actually a pretty famous island. It's, it's a famous island because it, it had a uh, significant role in the slave trade back in the days. And in our last day that we had in Senegal, we'd been there for like a month, and we were taking some time to just kind of rejuvenate before hopping on this plane to fly back to the U.S. Uh, we had some time to go and visit Gore Island. And we, we went to Gore Island. They had this big building where they used to house these slaves before they would put them on ships and send them over to the Americas or, or wherever. And so we go into this building, and it was really a very surreal experience because of um, you know, there's different theories on how many slaves actually went through this building. Some say very little. Some say a, a ton. Um, but either way, slaves were housed in this place. And, and so you go in, it's multiple stories, but the bottom story, there's this long hallway. And lining the hallway are all these holding cells. And these holding cells is where these slaves that had been captured or, or sold or whatever were now, they, they were sifted into these different holding cells, and they would stay there until a ship would arrive, and they would put them on the ship, send them wherever they were going. Um, and so this hallway, long hallway, is lined with all of these holding cells. And at the end of the hallway, you just see this opening, it was a door, but it really there was not even a door on it, just an opening, and all you see is the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, that opening was literally just a few feet away from where the water came up to this island. And this, this opening is a very famous opening. In fact, you can Google this. You can Google the door of no return, and tons of pictures and stories about this opening in this building will come up. It's a very famous space, and they called it the door of no return because they knew that once they were in those holding cells and then once they went out that opening and got on a ship, they would never see Africa again. They would never return home again. They called it the door of no return. It was a very, very hopeless situation to be in. Heartbreaking. And the people sitting in those holding cells, literally, they had, they had no hope. They were simply waiting for, for their moment to walk through the door of no return. And, and I share that with you because this is almost exactly how Exodus starts. These people were enslaved. These people were in bondage. These people were in a terribly low place. They had very little, in fact, they had no hope. And I want to pause here for a second because you and I need to understand before we go any further in this text that everyone in this room can relate to this in some way. Every single one of you can relate to this in some way. You you either were or you are just like one of those people on Gore Island being held in one of those holding cells, simply waiting in a seemingly hopeless situation to be simply shipped out through the door of no return. You either were or you are just like one of those people waiting to walk through the door of no return. Many of you in this room are, are enslaved. Many of you in this room are in bondage. You're held captive. You're held hostage. However you want to phrase it. 
You're enslaved to sin. You're enslaved to shame. You're enslaved to guilt. I mean, if we could pull away all the layers that we use to try to hide this stuff that is existing underneath, you know, it it would be staggering how many of us in this room are dealing with this. We're enslaved. We're enslaved to all sorts of like endless cycles of sin. Many in this room are enslaved to this endless cycle of sexual sin. I mean, just speaking to the girls for a moment, some of you, you're afraid to lose the guy that you're with right now, and so you're doing things with him that he wants to do that you don't necessarily want to do, but you're doing it to keep the guy. You're enslaved to this sexual cycle of sin. And you guys in the room, speaking to you, many of you, you are in that sexual cycle of sin as well, and you know it's wrong. You know that you're manipulating the situation. You know you're manipulating her into doing things you you know she don't want to do, but you you aren't stopping because you're enslaved to this selfishness and this, and this cycle of, of like lack of self-control. Many of you, you're enslaved or, or held captive by the power of pornography. Like you can't even think about anything else. I mean, some of you, you're so enslaved to the power of pornography that you can't look at somebody without undressing them. Like you can hardly carry on a normal conversation with somebody else because of this. In fact, many of you, you're so enslaved to pornography. Like, hear me. Some of you are so held hostage by the power of pornography that you're sacrificing friendships. You're trading friendships. You're losing friendships because you would rather sit at home with your porn than be out with people and have like real life interaction and real life conversations. Many of you are enslaved by an identity that's defined by past mistakes. I know this is true. Many in this room are enslaved by this identity that is so defined by something that happened in the past. Maybe it was a mistake you made. Maybe it was something that happened to you that you didn't want to happen. But you're now enslaved to this identity. It's defining who you are, and you can't shake it. Some of you are enslaved or held captive by just... A slew of bad habits, laziness, um, insecurities, passivity, anger, jealousy, envy. I mean, we, could, we could list a ton of things. There's so many things, so many things that are enslaving or holding people hostage in this room. And what I want you to see is, in so many ways, Israel's story is our story. Like what we are walking into this semester, the story of Exodus. In so many ways, this is our story. This is something that actually happened. This is a historical story. It's not this allegory. But, but God, in his perfect wisdom, in his perfect grace, through these things that happened to the Israelites, reveals so much about our own, own, our own story. And our own story begins with slavery. This is where the series begins. Slavery. So the question is this, are you enslaved to something? Are you, are you in bondage to something? And, and listen, I think I've said this before, but I know a lot of times when I'm hearing somebody preach a sermon or teach something, and I know this happens all the time when I'm teaching, it, it's natural instinct for me to be like, like, I know the person I'm sitting next to right now, and I know they're enslaved to this. So it's really good they're here, hearing this. Some of you, you know, you know exactly what Some of you are laughing because you're like, I was totally just doing that right now. I was doing that about you. You're laughing like, you know, anyways. 
And, and so what, what happens is, as I'm saying this stuff, you kind of bounce it off yourself onto the person next to you or the person in front of you. And, and what I want you to hear is, I'm not talking to the person next to you. I'm talking to you. This question is for you. Uh, look, I, I sat down, I was telling the guys, I sat down last night to preach out of Exodus 3, 1 through 10 this morning. Uh, and, um, you know, I've been working on it. I've been working on this series for over a month now. Um, working on that particular sermon for over a week now. And, and last night about 11 o'clock, it was like, no, this is not what you're supposed to preach. And I'm like, well, crud, uh, this is going to be a long night then. And so I started preparing to preach actually from Exodus 40. I was like, well, let's start at the end. <laughs> That's not logical. Uh, but I was like, let's, let's, so I start working on Exodus 40, work on that for a couple hours. So like 1 a.m., I'm like, that's not right. I just wasn't feeling it, you know. And so finally about 2, 2.30, I'm like, well, forget this. I'm going to bed. And so I woke up this morning, uh, called the guys, called Jay Wood and Wag around 10 because we were going to talk about tonight. And normally I tell them what I'm preaching on uh, days in advance, but I didn't know until this morning. This morning I called them at 10. I'm like, yeah, I still don't know really what I'm preaching on. So y'all just plan a worship set. And uh, it wasn't until like 10, 10.30 that I was like, hey, I know this is what I'm supposed to preach on. The reason I share that with you is because these are where these questions came from. Are you enslaved to something? What are you enslaved to? I didn't make up these questions. God knew you would be in this room tonight, and he's asking you, not the person next to you or in front of you or behind you, he's asking you these questions. What are you in bondage to? What is holding you captive? Listen, there's three types of people in here right now. One, there's those who are enslaved to sin and death. Listen very carefully here. There's people in this room who are enslaved to both sin and death. You are literally standing right outside the door of no return. And once you pass through that door, you cannot come back. And this door represents the physical and spiritual death that you will experience due to your sin. That's the first type of person in this room. And, and as I say that, some of you, immediately in your heart, you know I'm talking to you. The second type of person in this room is, is those of you who ultimately you have been set free from, from slavery to, to death, sin and death. Like You've been set free from the consequences of your sin through faith in Jesus. However, you're still struggling to break free of certain sin. You're still struggling to break free of identity issues and these struggles that you're holding onto or that are holding you hostage. That's the second type of person in this room. The third type of person in this room is those of you who are lying to yourselves because you don't think you're one of the first two types of persons, people, whatever. And so you, you're enslaved by a lie. Those are the three types of people in this room. And so which one are you? What are you enslaved by? What are you in bondage to? You go back to chapter 2, verse 23. It says, During those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. I want you to underline that word, cried out for help. Guys, underline it too. Cried out for help. It says they cried out for help. Now to the girls I say, this, this was not a pretty cry. This was an ugly cry. You know what I'm talking about. This was an ugly cry. This is not a cute cry, pretty cry. This is one of those cries that when you start to cry, like... Liquid starts coming out of every hole on your face. And by the end of it, you look like you got punched in the face and you got pink eye. This is an ugly cry. Now to the guys in the room, um, crying is a term given to this uh, really strange phenomenon that it happens when salt water begins to drip from your eyeball area. Uh, so if you don't know what that is, that's what it is. And contrary to common belief, every 
human male in existence actually does have the ability uh, to do this. But notice this. It doesn't just say they cried. It says what? It says what? It says they cried out. Specifically, they cried out for help. This was a legitimate last resort call for help. They had no other hope. They had no other option. There's nothing dignified about this. This was the lowest of all lows. This is poverty and humility at its finest. So uh, I I preached at this deal in Harlingen, Texas this week. Anybody here from Harlingen? One. Okay. Anybody else in here been to Harlingen? Okay. I I was going to laugh. It was just one still. Um, Harlingen is about as far south as you can go in Texas. I was was teaching us this deal down there. And um, I, I wanted to get back in time for Sunday morning here. So uh, I had to get up uh, really crazy early on Sunday morning. My alarm went off a little bit before 4 a.m. I'd gotten in bed at 1, so I was a terrible person all day. Uh, but I, I got to the airport. I left the hotel about 4.15, got to the airport about, uh, I don't know, not long after that, and uh, get on my plane um, to fly to Houston, Houston to Dallas Love Field. Get on the plane. It was about 4.50. It was maybe closer to 5 a.m. And uh, I'm sitting there. And uh, everybody's loaded on. We're actually about to be a little bit early. And they come over to the intercom and say, so the computer system in the plane's having problems. So um, we haven't been able to fix it yet. So we're going to turn off the entire plane and try to reboot the system, see if we can fix it by doing that. If not, we're going to have to call a maintenance guy, which my first thought is, yeah, the maintenance guy that is sound asleep, 30 miles away from the airport like every other human in Harlingen, Texas, um, which means I'm going to miss my flight in Houston and I could be in bed right now sleeping instead of on this broken plane. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm crazy mad at this point, and I'm starting to think terrible thoughts, like I'm going to start killing people here. And so instead of doing that, I pulled out my Bible and started to read that, and I ended up in Psalm 107. And it's really crazy that this happened, knowing God knowing that I would be preaching from this text tonight. Psalm 107, beginning, actually turn there with me. Psalm 107. Um, Psalm 107 says, verse 1, in fact, I think Jay would, or Wag read from it tonight. Psalm 107 verse 1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Basically, this psalm calls people who have been redeemed from trouble, as it says in verse 2, to praise God with their words. It's where it says, let them say so. Like that's vocally express praise for God for redeeming them from trouble. It's a call to worship as a result of what God's done in your life. The rest of the psalm, verses 4 through 31, it points out four different very common situations that people like us in this room will find ourselves in. Now I want to look at those really quick. Verse 4, it says this. Some, talking about these different people who were redeemed, some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within, uh, within them. Verse 6, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Now, I've had some time to kind of mull over this and think over this, but as you look at this, what you see he's talking about is some of you feel completely deserted. Some of you feel totally empty. You are hungry and you're thirsty. You'll pretty much take anything from anybody Uh, who's willing to give you something. And I'm not talking about actual physical thirst, physical hunger. I'm talking about you're hungry and thirsty for other things, and you'll take anything from anybody who you think can fill those things you're hungry and thirsty for. Many of you, you have no self-worth. You feel like you're living in this desert. 
Verse, verse 10 says, Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. Skip down to verse 13 says, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Verse 16, For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. So looking back at verse 10, some sat in darkness in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. Some of you, you're held captive by some really deep and dark thoughts. Like some of you in this room, you're cutters. Or some of you in this room, you struggle a lot with, with thinking about suicide or even worse thoughts than that. Some of you struggle, you, you feel trapped inside a dark mind. You feel trapped inside a dark place. You want out, but you're a prisoner to it all. That's who he's describing in verse 10. Verse 17 says, Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Some of you have made some unbelievably foolish decisions. And those unbelievably foolish decisions have carried with them some unbelievable consequences. And so now, and you know exactly who I'm talking to, now you're suffering because of the terrible decisions that you've made. Like, as I'm saying this, some of you know that I'm talking about you. And then you get to verse uh, 23. It says, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business in the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. These are some massive waves in the ocean. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. This is describing some of you who are in situations where you can hardly keep your head above water. You feel as though you're sinking. You feel as though you're drowning. You're drowning in emotional debt. You're drowning in financial debt. You're, you're held captive, some of you, by terrible circumstances that you haven't even had control over. Can't keep your head above water. But notice the outcome of all four situations. In, in every case, you get to a point where it says, then they cried to the Lord, and what happens? He delivers them. Exactly. It says, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Every time they cried... And every time he delivered. Now, go back to Exodus. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And then you skip to chapter 3, verse 7, and it says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them. You have to see this. We worship a God who sees and hears and knows. Did you see that in the text? He sees their affliction. He hears their cry, and he knows their suffering. And the fact that we worship a God who sees and, and hears and knows is hugely significant on multiple accounts. One is this. Our God is the only God who sees, hears, and knows. No other God has that ability, mainly because there is no other God. And, and sadly, I've been in many parts of the country, in many parts of the world, and seen, been in places where people worship other gods. 
And it's the saddest thing ever. I've stood in a Hindu temple. I've stood in a Buddhist temple. I've stood in other places and seen people literally on their knees, on their faces, begging this statue made out of metal or stone to do something for them. And this statue has no ability to do so. Our God is the only God who has the ability to see, hear, and know. When we cry out to, a God, to our God, he hears us. Another reason this is a hugely significant thing that our God sees, hears, and knows is that our God sees, hears, and knows everything we have ever done, everything that we have ever thought, everything that we've ever said, and yet he still chose to come down and to deliver us. Underline that phrase, chapter 3, verse 8. It says, and I, God's talking, and he says, I have come down to deliver them. Let me ask you this. Does that sound at all familiar to you? Thousands of years prior to Jesus coming, God is already setting the stage for Jesus. And I said earlier that Exodus reveals to us a God who is so passionate about his people and about his glory that he's willing to do whatever it takes, go to extreme lengths to get back what's been taken away from him. But the reality is Exodus reveals so much more than just that. You're going to see this this whole study, especially tonight. Exodus reveals to us a God who is so passionate about his people and so passionate about his glory that he has gone, that he has gone to extreme lengths to come and set you free. And to what extent has he gone? Philippians chapter 2 verse 6 says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, he set aside completely his place and position in heaven. Jesus, he traveled the untravelable distance between us and him to get to you and me. Jesus, he humbly died the necessary, painful, humiliating death that you and I deserve to die. And he did all of that so that we could be set free from our slavery to sin. Psalm 107, 16, I read this earlier, it says, For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. Nobody shatters bronze doors. Chuck Norris can't do that junk. Nobody can, like, people can bend iron bars. You ever seen, like, the power team, you know? But people can't just cut an iron barn and, uh, iron barn, <laughs> iron bar in half. But this is what our God does. Sin's grip on us is strong. But Jesus' power over sin is stronger. We're calling this series Acclimate. I don't know if you know what that word means. Cool. Glad you know. <laughs> Whoever that was. Uh, to acclimate is to become accustomed to a new climate or new conditions. It's, it's to adjust to a new climate or new conditions. And so in Exodus, God's about to set an entire nation of over a million people free from the only life they'd ever known, which was slavery in Egypt. That's what they are born into. And once he does, he's then going to begin teaching them how to adjust to their new life under new leadership under a new law, lived out in the mighty presence of God. And God wants to do the same in our lives now.
He wants to set us free from our slavery to sin. The only life we've ever known. And then teach us how to adjust to this new life of freedom from sin under the leadership of God. But, but, in order to be set free from our slavery to sin, we've got to cry out to God and ask him to do so. It comes back to this pattern that we see in Psalm 107 and Exodus 2 and 3. There is a direct correlation between crying out and deliverance. Neither one happens without the other. So in other words, you will not experience deliverance until you have first cried out. And you will never cry out and not be delivered. Neither happens without the other. You will not experience deliverance without first crying out. Matthew 5, 3 through 4, 3 through 5-ish, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, cry out. Blessed are those who are meek, crying out, takes, a place, takes being in a place of poverty in, inside and, and meekness inside. Blessed are those who do that. And it says they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. You will not experience deliverance from sin and death until you've cried out. And in the same way, you will never cry out and not be delivered. Romans 10, 13 says, Everyone who calls or cries out on the name of the Lord will be saved or will be delivered. Conviction, brokenness, humility, honest recognition of our sin, our struggles, our slavery, that's what leads us to cry out to God. And so many in this room need to do that. And all your cry, all your prayer needs to be is simply this, God, I need you to save me. That's what crying out consists of. Let me pray for us. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.